0: It's Tuesday, March 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The conversation about raising the federal minimum wage continues in Congress after it will not be allowed to stay in the COVID relief bill. Some members of Congress want an increase to about $10 and want something more regional to apply. Many large businesses have already raised wages, and while other businesses support these increases, not all are sold on President Biden's $15 an hour plan. Eric Murath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, after drug lord El Chapo was arrested in 2016, a void was left as to which cartel leader would assume power next. The DEA is now on the hunt for El Mencho, leader of the CJNC cartel, which is responsible for huge amounts of meth and fentanyl coming into the United States. He has eluded federal authorities so far, and in many ways, is like hunting a ghost. He maintains a low profile compared to the flashy El Chapo. Gabe Gutierrez, correspondent at NBC News, joins us for the hunt for Mexico's bloodiest drug lord, El Mencho. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. The people who are suffering most from the minimum wage and what's happening in the in the pandemic are the essential workers. Many of them are women. Many of them are getting paid very low wages. Joining us now is Eric Morath, labor and economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us,
1: Eric. Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to talk about the minimum wage conversation that's going on right now. Democrats had wanted to put a federal minimum wage increase into the COVID relief bill. It doesn't look like that's going to happen in the Senate. It'll probably end up being taken out there. But the conversation is still ongoing. There's this push to increase the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage from seven twenty-five dollars to $15 an hour. And uh, businesses, for their part, a lot of them have already increased these wages, a lot of large businesses, and they're not opposed to raising the minimum wage. It's just they might not want to go with Joe Biden's plan about it. So, Eric, tell us a little bit more about what we're hearing.
1: I think the minimum wage is going to continue to be a hot topic in Washington because President Biden is calling for a raise to $15 an hour. So businesses are a little bit in a peculiar spot. They're not across the board against a minimum wage increase. In fact, even the Chamber of Commerce, sort of the voice of business in Washington, has said they think it's probably time after 12 years to raise the minimum wage, but they're stopping short of a $15 an hour level. It seems in general businesses are a little bit more comfortable with something between 10 and 12 and there's even been republicans in the senate that have backed a $10 minimum wage so there seems to be room for compromise. The question is whether the president and democrats, you know, are willing to lower their desire on this or if they're going to hold out and say, you know, this is only something that we do once a decade, we can't afford to go small on it.
0: What a lot of these companies would rather have is uh, everybody kind of wants that phased rollout, the slow incremental increase, but they want to kind of allow for regional differences. You know, if you live on the coast where it's a, a lot more expensive, the cost of living, you know, maybe $15 works there. But in some of the other areas, it might be a lot. And, you know, the burden obviously is very high on small businesses and restaurants in particular.
1: In fact, we sort of already have a regional model, not by choice, but just by the way it worked out in that. 29 states have raised their minimum wage but you know proponents of the federal increase will point out that in cities such as Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Dallas places that the cost of living isn't that low still follow the 725 rate so they say sort of you only leave it up to the states some states may choose not to act at all on that but yeah a lot of businesses want to make sure that the rollout is phased in and would like some sort of a dispensation if they operate in lower cost areas. But then some businesses say, you got to be careful, not have too many exceptions. McDonald's, who we connected with for this story, said, you know, they don't want to see where their competitors might be classified as a small business, but because they're part of an you know, international brand are classified as a big business, you know, that a restaurant is a restaurant competes with the other restaurants in the town. So there's a lot of challenges to work out. But businesses, I would say, are not fully opposed to it, but just not ready to go to 15.
0: Yeah. And McDonald's, you know, the behemoth that it is, right? Most of them are franchises and independently owned. So there's the balance that needs to be struck there. Tell me a little bit more about the bigger companies. Let's say the Amazons, the Costcos, the Walmarts, they've already raised their starting pay, a lot of them to $15 an hour. How do they fare in all of this conversation?
1: These big companies, they kind of fall into two buckets. So Amazon, probably most notably, but also I think Costco and Target would also fall into this. They've already set a $15 minimum wage and Amazon is openly campaigning. They say, hey, the whole country needs to move to $15 an hour. And they point to that brings better productivity, better likelihood of retaining workers. But some economists I talked to and some small business I talked to say Amazon's a perfect example. They're able to automate their warehouses, they have stores where they don't even have cashiers. They have the technology and the money to invest in labor saving methods. The local grocery store may not even have a self-checkout aisle yet. So they're saying that's not exactly equal. Walmart's more in the middle. They say they're pretty in line with the chamber overall. They say there should be a minimum wage increase. They start workers at 11, but they very much want to make sure they still have the flexibility to start people at a little bit lower than 15, especially in the more rural parts of the country where they operate.
0: One of the biggest concerns with all of this is job losses. And the CBO had a report out that said there would be a lot of lost jobs if the federal minimum wage was raised to $15 an hour. It did also say that a lot of Americans would be raised out of the poverty level. So there's pluses and minuses there. But I mean, really, that is a big concern that there would be job losses.
1: The CBO report points out that more than a million Americans could lose their job from a $15 minimum wage, but the same report says 27 million Americans would receive raises. And so it's a little bit different discussion. I mean, I would say when I've covered this a few years ago, a lot of concern was, you know, we just can't accept any type of job loss. There's certainly some Democrats out there that say maybe we can accept that a $7.25 an hour job isn't a job that we really need in this economy. And that maybe we need to spend money elsewhere to train workers and get them up to the level so they can get and qualify for a $15 an hour job. But there's definitely some willingness, I think, to trade some modest amount of job losses if you get 10 times that in terms of families getting raises.
0: As I mentioned, it doesn't look like it's going to be part of the COVID relief bill. What's the next step for this discussion? Is this going to have to be some type of standalone bill?
1: Yeah, most likely it'd have to be some type of standalone. So at this point, I think the choice is do members of Congress look to find a compromise, find a number in the middle where you could get Republican support and allow it to pass in the Senate? Like I said, Senator Romney, Senator Cotton have put out minimum wage increase proposals. So there is something out there to be had. Or is it stand firm and 15 or nothing and kind of go back to the electorate and say, hey, one party, we support this and another party, they don't support it. And, you know, if you look at a place like Florida, overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump in November, also overwhelmingly supported a $15 minimum wage in the state. And even Senator Rubio took note of that and said, there's probably some room here to raise the level, but no Republicans have stepped out and said it should be 15.
0: Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
2: El Mencho seems to be a lot more disciplined than Chapo was. Chapo liked to live the, the flashy lifestyle. Uh, the cars, women, nice restaurants, alcohol. El Mencho is content to stay away from that stuff, to stay off the radar. An opiate-addicted baby is born every 15 minutes in this country. That's the face of drug trafficking that El Mencho is creating.
0: Joining us now is Gabe Gutierrez, correspondent at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Gabe.
2: Thanks so much, Oscar. Nice to be here
0: wanted to talk about the hunt for El Mencho. The DEA right now is looking for basically the new guy in town. This is after El Chapo had been arrested. You know, we have saw what happened in 2016 with him. But the drug trade is ongoing. And stepping in to fill this void is this new cartel. It's the CJNG. And it's run by a guy named El Mencho. He's a lot harder to find right now. Uh, people uh, say it's like hunting a ghost. Gabe, you did a a deep dive into how the DA is searching for him. Tell us a little bit about it.
2: So the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, as it's known, CJNG, it's actually been around now for almost a decade. But in the last couple of years it really has gained prominence especially as you mentioned after El Chapo Guzman was captured in 2016 and right now the DEA is offering a 10 million dollar reward for information leading to El Mencho's arrest he is the man that is believed to be leading this cartel and yeah we went in search for more information about this and you know our DEA sources told us that yeah It's the DA's number one priority right now to try and track down El Mencho, that the cartel is responsible for tons of meth and fentanyl heading into the U.S. each month. And yeah, that El Mencho is different from El Chapo in the sense that he is a bit like a ghost, according to one source. The, uh, The cartel leader, he was born in a tiny Mexican town in 1966. He actually was in the U.S. for a short time in the 80s. He was arrested here for selling drugs. Some reports have him that he even worked as a police officer at one point, or there are sources had told us that that may have been exaggerated. But basically, CJNG, the cartel, it splintered off from the well-known Sinaloa cartel back around 2009, 2010, And since then, this cartel has been wreaking havoc and in some ways has been compared to ISIS in the way that it, the brutality of what this cartel does to its victims, beheadings, you name it, and uh, isn't shy about posting it to social media. So certainly a disturbing cartel, and if you followed cartels in Mexico and uh, the drug war down there, uh, it's nothing new that cartels have kind of gotten a reputation for being especially brutal. But CJNG in particular, uh, over the last several years, has really drawn the attention of of the DEA.
0: You know, it was just about at the end of January, I believe, that officials there came across the largest meth bust in North Texas that they've ever seen. It was about $45 million worth of meth. You mentioned that they also dabble in the fentanyl, and they're just all over the place. There's major U.S. cities, you know, all throughout Mexico. So what do we know about possible whereabouts and kind of that hunt for it? Because you already mentioned he's kind of a ghost, but they suspect he might be living in mountains. You know, how does he operate the cartel when he's under such deep cover like that?
2: Right. Well, you know, and I I didn't mention, we keep calling him El Mencho, but his real name is uh, Nemesio Ruben. And um, the DEA does believe at this point that he's up in the mountains, but there have been reports. Look, last summer during a COVID pandemic, there were some reports, according to the Mexican newspaper, that he actually had his own private hospital built outside of Guadalajara because he apparently had some sort of kidney disease. But, you know, it's hard to pin that down. A lot of this is rumors that, uh, you know, kind of make their way as part of the legend of this cartel. But, yeah, at this point, the DEA is having a very tough time pinning it down his whereabouts. And that's part of the reason they're hoping that, uh, you know, a $10 million reward, that's, I mean, obviously a huge amount of money. They're hoping that somebody will point them in his direction. But as best they can tell, he has really kept a low profile and different than El Chapo. I mean, El Chapo was known as being a guy that had a pension for, you know, fancy cars, women, very flashy lifestyle, nice restaurants. El Mencho According to the DEA sources we spoke with, yeah, he stays away from all that. He keeps you know, relatively low profile, and that's why they haven't uh, been able to track him down. As we report in the story, you know, one of his few known vices is reported love of cockfighting, you know, he apparently got another nickname, <laughs> the Lord the, of the Roosters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and so there's a temptation in these types of cases when you hear these stories is, there, in some ways, it's a romanticized view of a cartel leader. But at the same time, you know, you can't forget that these cartels are blamed uh, for the ruthless murder of quite a bit of people um, and contributing to the uh, the ongoing drug war down in Mexico. Deadly time in Tijuana as CJNG kind of butts heads with the Sinaloa cartel, which as it splintered off from that cartel, there's an ongoing drug war there. In some ways, it, it's a good story, but it is right. a story of death and uh, a very bloody legacy that Almencho has left behind so far.
0: You were also given uh, special access to a DEA secret lab where they look into a lot of the drugs. They do analysis on it. Obviously, they're looking at a lot of methamphetamine that's crossing the border. What else did you see there uh, when you were looking at this lab?
2: That was a DEA lab that we were able to um, get a rare look inside in an undisclosed location. The DEA says it is seeing more meth across the border, much of it attributed to CJNG. And, uh, you know, unlike marijuana or heroin, meth doesn't require huge swaths of land or good weather. The labs can be built in very isolated areas, and the synthetic drug is can be much more profitable. But this particular methods coming over right now, according to the DEA, is much more potent than before. So it's also much more profitable. And, you know, we did speak with a security commissioner in the state of Guanajuato when we traveled to Mexico. We actually went there shortly before the pandemic, and she had told us that Americans demand for these type of drugs is really fueling the drug trade. And that's something you'll hear a lot from Mexican officials is they'll say, look, once you confront them with criticism, why they aren't doing more to confront the cartels, of course, there's a long, well-documented history of corruption uh, within the federal government down in Mexico, but also state governments who are often under controls of the cartels because they just have so many resources down there, They the money, they're just able to have many of these small local police departments, especially in rural areas in their pocket, but you talk to some of the security officials down there and they say, look, you know, if the Americans did not want this much meth, that now want these drugs, that there wasn't a the demand for this, right. then the drug trade wouldn't be as profitable uh, down there. So what we saw in this drug lab that the DEA has, when that they, you know, they have many of these, but this one in particular was looking through the vast quantities of meth. And yeah, it's, it's much more potent than, pre, than, than before and uh, apparently much more profitable for these cartels, as you mentioned just a few weeks ago really in North Texas is a huge drug bust. it's staggering. You now forty five million dollars right. that was found in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And it's it's sometimes continuing even, you know, during this pandemic.
0: And it's obviously, you know, it's a huge problem. You mentioned the violence that's associated with this. They post these things on social media a lot of times, which is troubling. You even got to speak to a man who his son was captured by them and murdered. Then they took over his ranch, basically, so that they can make it into a facility to make meth. So this is how how bad it can be for the people locally there.
2: Yeah, and this this man, you know, for security reasons, asked us not to show his face. Obviously, you know, he feared uh, retribution. But he had spent, you know, now we spoke with him again just a little over a year ago. He. Didn't know what had become of his son's body. He felt certain that he had been murdered, but he hadn't been able to find it. He told us, you know, I didn't believe human beings could do this. And he referred to what they were undergoing as a war. He was a very soft-spoken man. He he told us that he, at one point, I worked as a chiropractor in Mexico, but that his family owned a ranch. And, you know, he said it had been handed down through generations. And at one point, dozens of cartel members seized it. And he really had no recourse because the government just, you know, he couldn't go to the police, couldn't go to any government officials because he just said that the government couldn't handle them. So yes, as you mentioned, you know, CGNG has posted these displays of the executions on social media, and that's different than some other cartels. They're really not shy about putting it out there. They basically want to be feared. And as I mentioned earlier, the ruthlessness of the attacks has drawn comparisons to ISIS. One of the DA agents we spoke with says, you know, they may not have a religious ideology, but in terms of violence, it's very similar.
0: How is El Mencho and this cartel perceived in Mexico? Because there were stories of El Chapo, let's say, being praised. And, you know, you even mentioned in, in your article about how sometimes these potential recruits and, and guys in these cartels, you know, do these kind of Robin Hood type things where, you know, they'll give uh, money and food and stuff to locals down there. But, you know, on the flip side, obviously, is all the ruthlessness. Well,
2: certainly, you know, and that's something that, you know, just because of the landscape of Mexico, uh, some of these rural communities that are stricken with poverty, you know, these cartels can be very attractive to young Mexicans who are perhaps looking for a better life. And they see the cartel as a way to make money to provide for their families and CJNG. Yeah, they're using social media, using ways of distributing their message in order to recruit. And if they are romanticized and seen as a particular way to make vast amounts of money for these young men, usually, who would be able to use the cartel, uh, you know, think it's, it's a way out of their poverty-stricken life. Yes. And, and you know, El Mencho has, just like Ochapa, you know, you mentioned that, you know, Ochapa was praised by some in Mexico, especially in his home state of Sinaloa. He was seen as a type of hero figure. And El Mencho, in, in the same way, there were reports that, the beginning or at some point during the pandemic that you you know his cartel would hand out supplies as a way to kind of get in with the local population you know in and around guadalajara this is you know something that they do constantly in order to continue their recruiting efforts uh, down there especially in rural communities
0: gabe gutierrez correspondent at nbc news thank you very much for joining us
2: thank you so much good to be here